Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. This episode is moderated by my colleague, Carlos Pasquale, Senior Vice President of Global Energy at IHS Market. Enjoy the conversation. And today we have an opportunity to have a conversation with one of those leaders at the center of the world's energy system, Mohamed Barkindo, the Secretary General of OPEC. Mohamed, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Carlos, uh, for having me. Good to see you. Uh, today, the Secretary General and I would like to take you through a conversation that runs through the stress that we've seen in markets, the geopolitical implications of that, but also looks at the future of energy production, of oil and gas production, and of governance. And Secretary General, if I could begin with an existential question. As a result of the pandemic, as a result of the oil price war, many have said that at times OPEC has faced the threat of destruction. But how did it feel from the inside and how did you manage this process that resulted from the combination of these two threats just coming together? Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Carlos. Uh, This is a a very, very important uh, question that immediately sent my mind uh, back uh, to the events of the past uh, couple of months. Uh, When we uh, met, uh, I believe it was in Davos at the World Economic Forum, uh, little did we know that we were facing these unparalleled uh, times ahead. Uh, We, for the first time in many, many uh, decades uh, came to face uh, a double whammy, as you say, in the U.S., of uh, demand as well as supply uh, shocks of uh, unparalleled uh, proportions. And did we uh, uh, prepare ourselves for this? Well, I can say that we had the mechanism of the declaration of cooperation in place way back in December of 2016 as a result of the last downturn. And we had worked uh, with this mechanism in the last four years with our partners in the non-OPEC. Therefore, we did not need to reinvent the wheel. We decided to to rely on this same mechanism, this same framework, but uh, trying to cope with the proportions uh, that we faced, and hence the historic decisions in April, April uh, the 9th and the 12th, to adjust supply globally by 9.7 million barrels uh, a day. But already we were facing uh, projections of nearly 30 million uh, demand contraction in the month of April, and between 25 to 30 in the second quarter, but it was a good beginning. Uh, We tried to cobble together this agreement despite the differences uh, among us, and we welcome the participation of the biggest producers in the world, in particular the United States, uh, that took it upon themselves to ensure that we were able to bridge the gaps between us uh, to restore communication between us 
to finally take this decision, including to the minutest details of the volumes. Uh, so we're grateful uh, to the U.S. Uh, and other leading producers around the world that uh, rallied around, including the G20. Let me pick up on that, Secretary General. What what produced the change from the meeting at the beginning of March, which couldn't come to an agreement, to bring, being able to bring together the OPEC Plus group and then the G20? Was it the intervention of President Trump, President Putin, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia? Was it the market? Was it a combination of all of these factors? What's the lesson to be drawn here on how to create effective governance around a wide range of countries? The current governing structure of the Declaration of Cooperation, bringing 24 producing countries together, uh, is in itself uh, burdensome in terms of its efficient operations because each producer, big or small, has one vote. And uh, that gives that country some sort of veto on the decisions taken. Therefore, it was always a huge task uh, to uh, get consensus uh, from all the participating countries. And in March, uh, it was clear it was one of those meetings that we couldn't get consensus, uh, and therefore we had to adjourn to continue consultations among ourselves. But of course, as you rightly said, uh, because of the magnitude, the horrific numbers uh, in the market, uh, the meltdown of the oil market, the stock markets, and the financial markets. Uh, this is something that was unparalleled. War leaders in the United States, in the Kremlin, in the Royal Court of Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, in Mexico, in Caracas, in many producing countries had to step in uh, when ministers reached their limits in terms of their ability uh, to compromise, uh, to do some, uh, provide some flexibility, the political leaders normally take over and their intervention uh, saved the situation. And we saw as a result of their intervention, uh, we were able to reach uh, this agreement uh, and uh, we saw their participation to the last minute uh, to ensure that that consensus was solid, uh, and uh, we remain grateful for us. We had always been advocates of a global dialogue in the energy transition. If you recall, in Sarah Week, past several years, we had advocated for this uh, global conversation, and the participation of the United States in particular is of great importance uh, to this transition as well as the energy uh, transition. As you are aware, thanks to Sarah Week, we were able to reach out to the U.S. independents, and we had established line of communication uh, with them. And I can say at the moment we have reached some level of comfort among ourselves, and uh, they have been participating also at their own levels uh, to ensure that this uh, conversation is inclusive and is led by the biggest uh, uh, producers. 
And indeed, you, you point to an important dynamic here and you use the word often conversation. And it's critical because on the one hand, you had countries that are not part of OPEC that can have a conversation with you, but they're not coordinating on strategy, but you understand each other on decisions being taken. And then you have other countries that are within the OPEC plus mechanism where there is an expectation of certain compliance. And that issue of compliance becomes really critical. Is, is there a key actor or player? Is it is it your secretariat? How do, how do you manage to maintain compliance with the commitments that get made within the OPEC plus group? Uh, the entire framework, Carlos, is voluntary. Uh, that is the fundamental aspect of this declaration of cooperation that brought together uh, countries with diverse backgrounds, diverse national interests and capacities as well as capabilities. Uh, but it is the same countries uh, that decided way back in 2016 that for our decisions to have the credibility that they deserve in the eyes of the market, we needed to put in place a monitoring mechanism. And hence, we established uh, the structures of uh, the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee uh, to work with the Secretariat uh, to ensure that all participating countries comply uh, 100% with their obligations. But still, it is about voluntary obligations. And this has worked in the last four years. We have seen uh, compliance levels rising well beyond 100%, both voluntary and, uh, and, and, and involuntary. Now, this time around, uh, there's a new element that is being uh, introduced because we have gone beyond the OPEC plus. Uh, there are countries who are outside uh, this uh, alliance uh, uh, that have come on board to participate with us. And these structures and, 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 and these uh, uh, compliance mechanisms are new uh, to them. And these are sovereign countries. Therefore, uh, we do understand why some of them, why some of them may have some challenges subjecting their jurisdiction to outside uh, uh, compliance monitoring by OPEC or by the OPEC non-OPEC or by the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee. But I think there is there is a growing consensus that uh, taking a decision. Uh, in terms of volumes, either to increase or to reduce from the market, is one thing. To be able to implement those decisions fully and in a timely manner is also something else. The two have to go together. Therefore, what we are facing now is how to make sure that everyone uh, implements these voluntary uh, obligations 100%. We went further to also institute a new element whereby countries who have some difficulty in one month, for example, in the month of May, this is the first month of the implementation. And for some technical or operational reasons, they were only able to make 90%. So we have introduced this element where they can compensate for that 10% in the subsequent 
subsequent months. And we think this is very fair, it's equitable, and it, it also gives the market uh, the guidance uh, that it requires that we are very solid on these numbers. These numbers are sacrosanct. So let's, fo- let's focus on those numbers. Um, as you said, you need to make decisions, and those decisions have to depend on certain criteria and metrics. What are the key metrics that you're looking at right now? Is it the price of Brent? Is it the five-year averages of stocks? How, how are you guiding the decisions that the group is making as a whole? The fundamental objective of both the OPEC and the OPEC Plus is to restore stability to the market by helping to bring supply and demand to some form of balance in the market. Mm. One metric that has worked since 2016 has been the uh, stock levels, the inventories, and the five-year average. Uh, the the, the five-year average of stocks globally, especially in the OECD countries, uh, both uh, in-country and offshore, has given us in the last four years a very good indication of the level of stability uh, of the market. We have been able to establish uh, a relationship uh, between these stocks levels and prices. It is clear quantitatively there is uh, a a relationship, an inverse relationship, if you like, between these two variables. We have seen throughout the implementation of the declaration of cooperation, each time the stock levels go beyond the five-year average, prices go down south and vice versa. So it has proven to us that we could focus on these metrics. Uh, to help the market to maintain some relative level of stocks around the five-year average. And we have also seen that has also stimulated uh, investments as well as confidence in the financial markets. And is there a price band that you're looking to maintain? Not at all. Uh, We had tried this several years ago. Uh, and it has really not worked, and we, we abandoned it. Uh, we have no price objective. Uh, we are focusing on the supply and demand balance that would ensure continuous investments in, in this industry to ensure that uh, security of supply is guaranteed, not only for current, but for future uh, demand growth. So it brings us to a question that is is a challenge to understand from a producer perspective. Every producer wants a higher market share, probably wants higher price. And in the near term, that only works if, particularly for the OPEC plus countries, if U.S. production continues to go down. And of course, it also assumes that there is an increase in demand. So let's take each of those pieces And right now we see in the United States an increase of COVID cases, talk about a return of lockdowns. How closely are you following this and what kind of questions is it creating among your members? This is a very important question because the the, the whole crisis 
is is primarily a health crisis. It is a pandemic uh, caused by this virus, uh, which has spread across the globe. And of course, governments responded by shutting down. Uh, and uh, we have read your reports uh, uh, at a point in April, uh, probably more than half of the global population was in one form of lockdown uh, or another. And uh, at the moment, we believe that as we gradually come out, as we gradually come out of these lockdowns, and hopefully, if we finally get the vaccine and the cure for this virus, we can say that the worst is over and that we will be on path of recovery. The form and shape of this recovery is still subject of discussions. Your discussions with Larry Summers was very, very interesting on these various forms and shapes. For us, we are following very closely developments in the U.S. for obvious reasons. The biggest economy, the biggest producer uh, before the pandemic has become also one of the biggest exporters. Now, we have also, thanks to you, established this dialogue with the U.S. independents. And uh, we are working with them to understand, to comprehend fully this new normal which nobody seems to to understand. So I want you to be rest assured from our side here, there is no objective whatsoever from us as a group or as individual countries to drive U.S. shell production out of business. No, it is not in our interest to do that. It is not in the interest of the global industry to do that. Without the U.S. shell, probably we could have entered into a worse crisis that we have seen in this pandemic. Everybody has a role to play. But as you rightly said, we need to balance. We need to balance the various variables. You have supply, you have demand issues compounded by a virus that has triggered a worldwide pandemic and is still ongoing. Uh, Therefore, uh, nobody can say for certain uh, what the outlook would be in the short term, let alone the medium term. But we are, we are, we are very much appreciative of the support and the cooperation we are getting from the U.S., both at the level of policymakers as well as from industry. This industry is a global industry. Without the leadership of the U.S., it would be impossible for any group of countries to be able to maintain sustainable stability. So two critical key things there. One is the recognition that the industry is global and there needs to be a global conversation. And secondly, that the way that that players operate in that global environment are going to be very different. Um, There's some that are going to be working together in an OPEC plus context and others who are going to be responding directly to market signals. But still, the conversation is important and helps create insight. And I think that's a critically important point to get across. If I could switch to the demand side, Secretary General, for a second, and China. 
China has been importing extraordinary amounts of oil, increasing its reserves by what some have calculated at about 2.4 million barrels a day. But at some point, they reach a limit to their storage. Is this a worrisome point to, to watch out for, that somehow this massive source of demand in China reaches uh, a wall where it simply can't continue the pace that it's been, that it's been moving on? applies to the rest of the world as well. It is not only uh, restricted to China. Of course, China is one of the biggest consumers of uh, energy, and in particular oil. Uh, And yes, uh, they have taken advantage of uh, the current market conditions to rebuild their stocks, especially their strategic storage. Uh, We have seen the massive... uh, replenishment uh, they had embarked upon to the tune of almost 2.4 million barrels a day. The last time I checked the numbers, I think they have built up well over 800 million uh, barrels of uh, stocks, and yet they still have uh, some room in the region of about 330 million barrels of storage left. Uh, But as we uh, also nearly Uh, panicked as a global industry in March, April, that we could easily reach the tank tops globally. So also in China, you cannot invest in storage overnight. Uh, It takes time uh, to attract funding, to construct the storage and so on. So it is worrisome uh, if uh, demand does not pick up uh, at a pace that will be able to continue to draw down on these stocks. It is also worrisome, the news filtering out of Beijing, that there may be uh, a second wave uh, sweeping across China at the moment. Uh, These are all worrisome. Uh, We have to uh, be very vigilant, and uh, we have to continue in the spirit of transparency uh, to share information, to share data, uh, I think it's for the global good. Uh, uh, that's all I can say. We promised uh, Secretary General to talk about the future, and indeed the the issue that dominates the future is energy transition and what happens with the way the to the, the way the world responds to climate change. Is energy transition an opportunity or a threat for OPEC? I think it's a great opportunity, not only for OPEC, but for the global industry and for the global uh, uh, community. Uh, uh, This pandemic has proven beyond reasonable doubt that we need to revisit the governance architecture uh, of energy, uh, climate change, uh, and possibly uh, geopolitics. It has also proven beyond any reasonable doubt that uh, multilateralism uh, cannot be uh, replaced uh, in the world of today. So going beyond or post-COVID-19, we need to, as an industry, uh, to uh, dwell in great detail what type of structures we need to have in place, drawing from the experiences uh, of these uh, few months uh, and how the whole world has shaken in order to 
not only to avoid future occurrences, but also to put the war uh, on the right pedestal uh, in terms of energy and climate change. Uh, We need to really come up with a governance structure uh, that would propel uh, the transition uh, in climate-friendly fashion. Uh, The pandemic is a pandemic, it's a health pandemic, but it has impacted on the global economy. It has also impacted on climate and the uh, human uh, communities around the world. There is some uh, 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 projections going forward that we cannot continue in the current fashion. And the structures that we have now uh, may not be adequate for us. So it is up to us as industry, as policymakers, as scholars to get together uh, without any encumbrances to really take a holistic review of what we have in place. OPEC will be 60 this September. We intend to use this opportunity uh, to review our existence in the last 60 years, where we fail, where we should have done things separately, and how do we adapt to this fast-changing world going forward. Indeed, Secretary General, many talk about this as an opportunity to accelerate history, to make judgments and investments about how we shape the world to come. And I think when history books are written over a year period as Secretary General of OPEC, they will certainly be historic. And when you think about the words that you use, multilateralism, global, the need to address climate change, these are factors that have been new developments that you've brought into OPEC. You still have time left on your term, your second term. And if you look ahead, what is the way that you would want that history to be written about this period of time and where you left OPEC at the end of your term? Uh, Carlos, you are asking me to uh, assess myself uh, and to uh, be my own historian to share with you what we have been able to modestly achieve in the last several years. Uh, that's almost an impossible task. Uh, but uh, whatever we have been able to achieve uh, in this epoch-making times uh, have been largely due to uh, great teamwork that we have within the organization we have been able to rebuild confidence within the organization and camaraderie among member countries that strengthen our hands to reach out uh, to our partners outside of OPEC. Now there's a thin line uh, between OPEC member countries and the non-OPEC countries operating in the Declaration of Cooperation. Sometimes uh, I speak more in a day with the non-OPEC countries than OPEC member countries, and we share information and 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 and, and strategy uh, without any encumbrance uh, between us. We have seen also as a result of this pandemic, now we are going to even going out uh, to countries beyond the OPEC plus, uh, and we are now talking about a new uh, governance structure possibly 
going forward. Uh, this has been historic times, and I think I will leave that to scholars, future historians, uh, to assess uh, what we have uh, been able to do or what we have failed to do. Secretary General, thank you for the vision that you have brought to your office to the way that you've conducted the role of OPEC. Uh, you've stressed the role of global conversation of multilateralism. You've made clear that a price target does not work. You've focused on supply and demand and stability in markets as a way to guide investment decisions that that create a better environment for producers and consumers alike. These are phenomenal developments that are taking place that are focused around how markets actually function. You've introduced the concept of climate change into every aspect of your strategy. So these indeed are historic transformations and we thank you for sharing them with us. As always, it's a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak with you. Secretary General, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Carlos. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for joining these Sierra Week Conversations. Thank you. Coming up next time on Sierra Week Conversations, Seamus O'Regan, Minister of Natural Resources in Canada, and Sunita Narayan from the Center for Science and Environment in India. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com.